Amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. Hope things are going well for you. Do you have your Bible with you? 2 Kings chapter 8 is where you need to go. And as you're turning there, I want to update you on, on one thing. Uh, the T family, if you didn't know, is back in the United States and going to be here uh, through at least early spring of this year until baby number two is born. And uh, they have been in the States for two weeks under quarantine, and that ended last night, I believe. And they will be here today in the later service. Um, so we rejoice uh, with them uh, at, at their safe travel back here. And we want to serve them well during this time here. So be looking for ways that you can uh, love and serve them while they are here. Uh, but I also need to say we need to maintain our, our level of security when we talk about them still. We'll still talk about them as the T family. Uh, we won't use the M word uh, when, we, when we talk about them. Uh, even though they're here for a time, we need to maintain that, that same kind of rhetoric around them. Sound all right? All right, so we are coming to the home stretch of our sermon series in the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. And that's really good timing as Jared is putting the finishing touches on the portrait of Elisha that he's been working on for some time that we will reveal at the very end of this sermon series. And I want you guys to be among the first to hear about what our plans are next, uh, where, where we'll be studying next. I'm about 90% sure uh, that what's going to happen next is I'm going to preach finally through the book of Revelation. Uh, it's going to take us a long time to do it, and we'll probably take a few breaks along the way. Uh, but that's where we're leaning at this point. I would encourage you to continue to pray uh, for me and for Dylan and Joe as we continue to discuss and make final plans for that. Um, but that's probably where we're going to head. And so I'm looking forward to that. I hope you will be too. For now, we're going to continue, though, to look at the prophet Elisha's life and ministry. Last week, we looked at a text that really raised a bunch of questions about the timing and arrangement of these events as we saw the reappearance both of that generous and hospitable Shunammite woman, remember her? And we also saw the reappearance of the fickle and greedy servant Gehazi. And regardless, though, of the arrangement and the timing of these events, the lessons for application are clear. Number one, we saw from the text that the Lord spares those who trust in him. So therefore, trust in him. Right, we talked about the gospel when we talked about this point. And I told you that like Elisha warned the Shunammite woman, I want to warn you that a day of judgment, a day of wrath is coming. A day of holy, righteous wrath of God against sin and sinners. And the only way of escape is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners and rose again so that sinful man can be reconciled to holy God by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invited you, as Elisha invited the Shunammite woman to flee in order to find safety, I invite you to run to Jesus and repent of your sins and trust in him and find salvation that is only in him. The Lord spares those who trust in him, <clears throat> so therefore trust in him. Secondly, we saw that faith is on display in our obedience to God's word. So therefore, obey God's word. Simply receiving the truth is inadequate. And even rejoicing in the truth that you received falls short. God has given us his word so that we would do what he says. Not just so that we would say thank you for sharing that with me. Not even so that we'd say it's good that you would share this with me. But so that our lives would be changed and conformed to the image of Christ in obedience to God's word. And then finally we saw that the Lord is at work all the time. 
So therefore, we should be looking for his purpose and trust him when we can't see that purpose. And I shared this quote with you from John Piper that was not on the screen in the early service last week, but it's on the screen now. Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Not only may you see only a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part you do see may make no sense to you. So trust him, love him, and they, that is those 10,000 things that he's doing, they will all be good for you. I think that's an important lesson for us in this season where we don't understand a lot of what's going on. But we must trust that the Lord has purpose in everything that we're experiencing and that his purpose is for his glory and our good. Those two things walk hand in hand. His glory and our good always travel together. Well, this week we're going to see another text that raises some difficult questions, but also has some clear lessons. And so as we read the text today, I want you to be on the lookout for the faithfulness of God to keep his word and the importance of delivering his word faithfully and sincerely. Also be looking for the emotional engagement of the prophet as he declares God's word. He's not cold and clinical and detached from this. His heart is involved as well. He's not unaffected by the message he delivers, and we must not be unaffected by the message that we deliver as well. So 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 through 15 is where we're going to study today. This is what God's word says. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, Take a gift in your hand and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loads, and he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You will surely recover. But the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? Then he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with a sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. Then Hazael said, But what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. So he departed from Elisha and returned to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. On the following day, he took a cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Let's pray together. Father in heaven and king of all kings, we are grateful, thankful for your word today, for the truth that you have shown us about who you are and who we are. And we want to be people who not only receive your word and obey it, but who also declare it. And Father, when we declare it, we don't want to be cold, clinical professionals who are detached from your word and unaffected by it. We want to be engaged with our minds and our hearts. We want to preach, as one great preacher put it, as dying, as a dying man to dying men. So Father, we ask 
that you stir our hearts today. Give us holy affections like Elisha had, like Paul had, like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So uh, this is a short enough text today that we can deal with it pretty much verse by verse. Uh, Some interesting stuff here. And the interesting thing starts really in verse 7 when it says, Then Elisha came to Damascus. And, and that's, a, that's a statement that we could easily overlook, but it raises a pretty big question. It's puzzling right off the bat. Why in the world is the prophet of God in Damascus? Damascus, which is the capital city of the enemy nation of Aram or Syria, as it's referred to in some of your translations. Why is the prophet of God in Syria's capital city? Well, some would say that he's there to deliver this word from the Lord to the king. And to anoint Hazael, the next king of Aram, as the Lord had instructed his predecessor Elijah to do back in 1 Kings chapter 19. So I've got this on the screen back in 1 Kings chapter 19. That that after Elijah has this moment of depression and fear and discouragement and he runs away from Jezebel. One of the things the Lord tells him to do is to anoint Elisha as his his, uh, predecessor. uh, Or as his successor. That's That's what it would be, right? Uh, The other is to anoint Hazael as king over Aram, and Elijah doesn't do it, but Elisha does in this text. So look at 1 Kings 19, God speaking to Elijah. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now we read nowhere of Elijah being faithful to the Lord's commands here, the three commands that the Lord gives him, except the one to anoint Elisha in his place. He doesn't do anything with Hazael, and he doesn't do anything with Jehu, but Elisha is going to do both of those things, and we'll see it in the text, one of them today. Now, some would say that the reason why Elisha goes to Damascus is to carry out the word of the Lord, and certainly that is the Lord's purpose in bringing him to Damascus, but it doesn't at all seem to be his express purpose for going there. As the text mentions nothing about him seeking out the king or seeking out Hazael. Rather, he just shows up in Damascus and these guys seek him out. So the Lord is ultimately getting him there to take this word to Hazael. But it doesn't seem to be the purpose that he went to Damascus for. Other people would say that Elisha is simply heeding his own advice that he gave to the Shunammite woman last week in fleeing from Israel in search of a place that has food that will be available during the time of famine because of the people's idolatry. So it may be that he's just he's heading out of town just like the Shunammite woman did uh, to search for food. Some would argue that he is in Damascus, that his exit from Israel to Damascus is actually another layer of judgment against the people for their idolatry. And I think this is important. That not only are the people of Israel going to suffer a lack of physical food because of their rebellion against God, they will also suffer a lack of spiritual food because of their lack of obedience unto the Lord. Look what Amos says, look what the Lord says to his rebellious people through Amos in chapter 8. He says, 
Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to east, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In the day of the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. So, so part of what Amos is getting at there and what the Lord is saying to his people is, one part of judgment for your rebellion is physical famine. A worse part of judgment for your rebellion is a spiritual famine where there will be no more word from the Lord in the midst of all of your pain because I'm going to send the prophets away. And that may be part of what is happening as Elisha makes his way to Damascus, maybe another layer of judgment against God's people for their sin. So I gave you three opinions about why these why he finds himself in Damascus. And I think it's likely some combination of all of those three things. And I tell you all of this to say that we should not just gloss over lines like, then Elisha came to Damascus. That, that's not just a, a marker to put Elisha on the map. There's a lot going on in the fact that the prophet of God is now suddenly in the capital city of a pagan enemy nation. Read on. It says, Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. Then the king said to Hazael, Take a gift in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Now we are not given any details in the text about this sickness, but it must have been pretty severe if he's inquiring about his very survival. Notice in the text that when the king is told about Elisha's presence, Elisha is referred to as, quote, the man of God. And I think it's highly ironic that the people in Syria, in Aram, who have no concern for the Lord, no concern for the Lord's people, seem at least to recognize Elisha as a servant of the Lord. When, at the same time, sadly, it seems that most of the people in Israel, including Israel's king, basically reject him. As the man of God, basically reject him as an important figure. Now, I say that not to say that Ben Haddad is a man of faith necessarily. I don't think Ben Haddad is a man of faith. In fact, I think Ben Haddad is like many pagan kings of the day who, when faced with an issue or a question, would inquire of a variety of oracles or seers or prophets until they got the answer from one of them that they wanted in the first place. I'm pointing this out simply to say that it's really sad that Israel seems to be lagging behind Syria when it comes to recognizing and respecting Elisha as a man of God. Now, as it would be customary when making such an inquiry, the king sends a gift along with his messenger. And we're going to talk more about that gift in a little bit. But for now, I want to draw your attention to the king's question. The king's question. This is why I think he's not a man of faith. He only seems to be concerned about his body. His question is, will I recover? Will I recover? He doesn't ask directly for a healing from the God whom Elisha serves. Though it may well be that his gift and the size of his gift in particular reveals that he thinks a big enough gift would get God to move on his behalf. And if this is so, if he thinks, if I just give enough money to the God of Elisha, then the God of Elisha will help me out. If this is so, then he would not be too different from faith healers of our day and those people who follow them. But what bothers me 
What bothers me most is not that he sends a gift, not that he may be searching for healing. What bothers me most is that he doesn't seem to have a concern for his soul in the midst of all this. He's a guy who's at odds with Yahweh. And he doesn't seem to have any care about his soul, only about his body. Look at it as it develops in verse 9. It says, So Hazael went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Now verse 9 is basically just a restatement of verse 8. So let me push again on this idea of the king of Aram's focus on his body and his presumption that giving enough money will cause God to move on his behalf. We must not make either of those mistakes. We must not make either of the mistakes that the king of Aram makes. First, we must recognize that our true problem is never just with our body. Our true problem is never about our marriage. It's never about our bank account. It's never about our job. It's never about these superficial, physical things that we face. That's not our deepest problem. I want us to affirm that our deepest, truest problem is in our hearts. It has to do with our sin. It has to do with our rebellion. It has to do with our idolatry and our lostness. And I want you to know that only Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, can fix that deepest, truest problem that we have. So don't make the mistake that Ben-Hadad makes and think that your problem is your body, that your problem is your marriage, that your problem is your bank account or your job. No, your problem goes much deeper than that, and only the Lord Jesus can fix that problem. Second, we must recognize that we cannot manipulate God into doing what we want him to do by giving him money, by giving him gifts, or by following some other magic formula that somebody points out for us. Think about it. If it did work that way, if it did work that way, those superficial problems and their formulaic solutions would not draw us closer to God. That whole scheme, That whole scheme that Ben-Hadad has bought into and that faith healers today have bought into, that whole scheme would in fact push people further from the Lord, especially when it comes to recognizing our truest need and the Lord's desire that he would be the great treasure of our lives. To say it another way, maybe some of those problems with our bodies or our marriages or our bank accounts or our jobs, maybe some of those problems are actually designed by God to draw us to him, to learn to see him as our greatest treasure and our greatest need. Let me say it a different way. Here's the point. We must learn to treasure the giver and not the gift. We must seek the Lord's face and not just his hand. Like if if someone is selling you just the gifts that God offers, they're selling you short. Because he wants you to know him as the giver. If someone sells you the mighty hand of God and not the face of God, they're selling you short. We don't want to just see his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. We want to know his face, right? We want to have a relationship with him, not just receive the things that he might offer to us. We must treasure the giver, not merely the gift. And we must seek the Lord's face and not just his mighty hand. Now, one last thing in verse 9 before we move on. I want you to see Hazael, at this point, is a faithful servant. 
he's doing what the king tells him to do. And we don't know everything that's going on in Hazael's heart as he moves forward, but at this point, he's faithfully serving his king. Look at verse 10. Elisha said to him, that's Hazael, Elisha said to Hazael, go say to him, that's the king, you will surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. So I think the punctuation in most translations here is right, that, that Elisha says to Hazael, go tell him, quote, you will surely recover, end quote. But the Lord has shown me, Elisha says to Hazael, the Lord has shown me that he will surely die. Now this is tricky because Elisha seems to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth here, doesn't he? Go say to him, you will recover, but the Lord has shown me he will die. What's going on here? Well, since we know the whole story, we know that it's perfectly accurate prophecy, right? That the king has inquired about the illness. He specifically sent his servant Hazael to ask the prophet, will I recover from this illness? And indeed, he would recover from that illness. That illness is not what is going to result in his death, but at the same time, he is surely going to die. So Elisha is not saying something that is contradictory here. Rather, with the insight given to him from the Lord, he speaks the truth. The illness is not what is going to kill the king of Aram, but the king of Aram is going to die. Now, I am super curious. This is one of those things that's tantalizingly unclear. I'm super curious how the moments right after Elisha said this played out in Hazael's heart. Look at, look at it as it unfolds. Verse 11 is so strange. It says, He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? Then he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, their young men you will kill with a sword, and their little ones you will dash into pieces. And their women with child, you will rip up. Now, there are a couple of ways to understand Hazael's initial response, verse 11. Some think that Hazael gets it immediately, that he already wants to be king and is basically looking for a route to the throne. And he sees his opening in Elisha's statement. He sees, he sees his way to the throne in what Elisha says, but Hazael fixes his gaze, that word can be translated as puts on his poker face in the vernacular, like he puts on the straight face in order not to give away his delight in this news. But as Elisha looks at him, he can see, and Hazael gets embarrassed, like that, that he is trying to hide his delight that the prophet just told me the king's going to die. That's one way to understand it. The other way to understand it is that it's Elisha who fixes his gaze on Hazael, that Elisha delivers this message and then just stares Hazael down, and Hazael is clueless. And in his clueless lack of understanding, he's embarrassed that he doesn't immediately pick up what Elisha is talking about. And, and I, I think it could go either way. I think it's one of those things that will just remain a mystery until we get to heaven and we can ask Elisha how all that played out. I don't know that we'll get to ask Hazael. In fact, I'm pretty sure we won't get to ask Hazael that. It could really go either way, but what I really want you to see in this part of the text, what I want to draw your attention to closely, are Elisha's tears. It says the prophet wept. The man of God wept. The Lord has revealed to him what is going to take place as Hazael assumes the throne, and it will be devastating for Israel. 
The language here is graphic and horrible, is it not? He talks about burning down strongholds. He talks about killing young men with swords. He talks about ripping pregnant women to pieces. This could not be worse for Israel. And we must remember when we think about this, that Israel deserves this because of their idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their rebellion. We must remember when we think about this horrible action that God is just in bringing this suffering on them. In, in fact, God is simply keeping his word that he promised long before this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is perfectly righteous and perfectly just for the Lord to bring this kind of judgment on his people for their rebellion. And yet, Elisha is moved to weeping over this truth. And I personally am deeply convicted at this point in the text, especially when it comes to my emotional engagement when proclaiming the gospel to lost people. When we speak to our friends and our neighbors, our family even, about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the resulting condemnation of all men apart from Christ to an eternal torment in hell, we should not be casual about that. And we should not be flippant about those things. When we speak about people perishing, suffering the eternal wrath of God for their sins, it should move us, right? When we think of billions, billions of people who are born and live and die without ever hearing about the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, that should not leave us unaffected. We should not be able to think about that and just go on about our day like nothing has happened. And if that doesn't move you, if thinking about people in general, if thinking about billions of people, think about people you love who are apart from Christ right now, who are lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, rebellious against God, and deserving only of his wrath and judgment and will suffer his wrath and judgment for all of eternity if nothing changes. Think about people you love going to hell. Shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't be able to engage that thought and not be moved in your heart. Is it right that God would condemn sinners to hell? Yes. Is it just? Is it just that he would pour his wrath out on those who reject his son? Yes. It's right and it's just and it should move us. It should move us anyway. We shouldn't just say it's true and be able to go on unaffected. I guess what I'm getting at is I want more of Elisha's tears. I want more of Elisha's tears when I think about the righteous judgment of God. I don't want to deal with it as just a cold fact. I want my heart to be impacted. I want my heart to be impacted like Elisha's heart was impacted. I want my heart to be impacted like Paul's heart was impacted. Look at Philippians chapter 3. I've got these out of order, Doug, sorry. Philippians chapter 3. Look at what Paul says. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even through weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. He's teaching his people about the truth of God's judgment against sinners, and he says, I tell you this through tears, through weeping. In Romans, Paul says, I wish that I myself could be accursed if they could be saved. Paul is not a professional. His heart is engaged. His affections are connected to his preaching. And I think Elisha and Paul learned this from Jesus. Look at, look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is this picture of Jesus uh, looking over Jerusalem and thinking about Jerusalem's rebellion, the, the Jewish people, by and large, their rebellion against God and the coming judgment for that rebellion. And watch what happens. It says in the text, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Is the judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem just and fair? Absolutely it is. They have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus himself is weeping over this fact. Oh, for a little more of Elisha's tears when we contemplate the righteous judgment of God against sinners. David Platt says it like this, God must judge sinners, but he is slow to anger and full of mercy. When judgment comes, there is an element of divine sadness in it. Tears fall with the fire and brimstone. Elisha knew judgment was necessary, but it was sad. He was a heartbroken prophet. And then later, Platt goes on and says, If people are going to refuse to believe and head off into destruction, then let them do so by walking through a puddle of our prayerful tears. Are you broken for those who don't know the king? Let us learn from Elisha to weep over the unrepentant and to remember God seldom blesses a tearless ministry want a little more of that sensitivity from prophet Elisha, from the apostle Paul, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you do as well. Look at how it plays out in verse 13 and 14. It says, then Hazael said, but what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha said, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. Now Hazael here may be full of false humility or he may be just genuinely clueless. I don't know. Either way, the deal is done. At this point, the deal is done. And the direction that the Lord gave to Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19 has finally been fulfilled through Elisha. Hazael will be the next king of Aram. Isn't it interesting to you that the prophet of the Lord is appointing the king of pagan nations? Like, What, what business does Elisha have appointing Hazael king of Aram? He's not talking about Judah. He's not talking about Israel. He's not talking about the Lord's people. He's talking about a foreign pagan enemy land. And yet the prophet of God is the one who's saying, who's going to be the next king? Isn't that interesting? And doesn't it ultimately illustrate that the Lord is the one who installs every leader everywhere? That the Lord is ultimately the one who puts people on thrones? 
And we should think about that a little bit today, especially as we face an upcoming election that will be, quote, the most important election in our lifetimes, like every other one is, right? It is important. And so I would encourage you, based on this text, vote this fall. Make a careful decision this fall. But also hear me clearly, put your trust in the Lord, not in a candidate, not in the electoral college. Trust in the Lord because he is the one who puts people on thrones. And he is the one who is ultimately on the throne. I'm, tell, I'm telling you, if you put your trust below that, you're doomed. If, if you bank your hope in Washington, Springfield, City Hall, you're in trouble. Put your hope in the Lord. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, so he, that's Hazael, departed from Elisha, returned to his master, who said to him, well, what did Elisha say? And he answered, he told me that you will surely recover. On the following day, he took a cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Now, whether Hazael understood what Elisha was saying initially or not, by the time he got back to the palace, he was crystal clear. He delivered the message, you will surely recover. He killed the king and he took the throne. And all of this... All of this intrigue, all of this uh, sin is ultimately a fulfillment of the word of the Lord delivered through the prophet. This is exactly what Elisha said would happen. You tell the king he will surely recover, but I'm telling you he's going to die. And that's exactly the way it plays out because application number one, the Lord keeps his word. The Lord keeps his word. We've, We've looked at this over and over again in Elisha's ministry. The Lord keeps his word. He always has and he always will. He keeps his word when he makes promises of deliverance and salvation. Keeps his word. When he says that whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. He keeps his word. And therefore, we rejoice and we rest securely in his promise of deliverance and salvation through Jesus Christ. But... He also keeps his word when he makes promises of judgment and condemnation. If he says rebellion results in judgment, rebellion results in judgment. So repent. Repent and trust in him. Turn away and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation because he is the only hope for deliverance. That's application number one. The Lord always keeps his word. Application number two is we have been called to deliver that word. We are prophets in some way. Not not like Elisha was, not like Elijah was, not like Isaiah or Jeremiah, not exactly like them, but we have been called to deliver the word of God to people, right? We have been called to say, this is what the Lord says. You need to listen up because this is what the Lord says. He's made promises of deliverance and salvation, and he's made promises of judgment and condemnation. Listen up, I've got a word from the Lord for you. We have been called to deliver the word of the Lord that the Lord ultimately keeps. And when we deliver it, we must deliver it with a heartfelt connection, with holy affection. We must deliver God's word with tears and rejoicing. Like I don't want to be robotic. I don't want us to be robotic in our delivering of God's message to his people. I really want to guard my own heart 
especially when I think about eternal judgment and condemnation. Like, I, I will be honest with you that I tend to go to this place where I say, hey, I'm going to tell you about holiness of God, sinfulness of man, sacrifice of Christ, repentance and faith. I'm going to tell you about those things, and it's on you at that point. My hands are clean. I'm good. You deal with it. Like, be indifferent towards someone's response. Be indifferent towards someone's eternal condition. Oh, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be able to think about someone rejecting Jesus and suffering eternal torment in hell and not be moved. Especially don't want to think about people I love and not be moved. So we must deliver God's word, but we've been also called to deliver it with a heartfelt connection and a holy affection. Jonathan Edwards wrote extensively about this, which is super interesting because he was about the most uh, uh, unaffective public speaker. Like he was boring to listen to. Um, And he was kind of a mundane kind of guy, personality-wise. But he understood a lot about affection, emotion, that is tied to spiritual truths. Wrote a ton about this. And one thing he said is this. Look at it on the screen. He says, If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. The reason why men are not affected by such infinitely great, important, glorious, and wonderful things as they often hear and read in the word of God is undoubtedly because they are blind. If they were not so, it would be impossible and utterly inconsistent with human nature that their hearts should be otherwise than strongly impressed and greatly moved by such things. Edwards, Edwards lowers the boom with that, does he not? He says, essentially, if these things don't move you, if you can contemplate the promise of salvation and the promise of judgment and not be moved, it's because you don't understand it. He, in his words, it's because you're blind. I hope that's not the case. It's not the case with us. hope we aren't spiritually blind. So let's pray that God will give us sensitive hearts as we deliver his word. We must deliver his word, and we should deliver it with a heartfelt connection and holy affection. And the third application really goes back to this idea that perhaps Ben-Hadad is trying to buy a healing from the Lord. My question for you is, are you looking for the gifts, or are you looking for the giver? Are, Are you following Jesus because of what he gives you, or are you following Jesus because of who he is? The heart of your problem is not your body, your bank account, your marriage, your job. The heart of your problem is your heart, your rebellious heart. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can change that heart. And he does by his grace. And he redeems you to know him. Not just receive good gifts from him, but to walk with him, to know him to see his face and not just experience the power of his hand. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we, we sang in praise to you a minute ago, great is your faithfulness. You are faithful. You always keep your word. Always have, always will. Pray that you remind us of that and that you will encourage us 
because you keep your promises of deliverance and salvation. I pray that that would encourage our hearts. And I pray that you will convict us with your promise of judgment and condemnation, that you would bring us to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we're, we're thankful that you have sent your word to us, you've given your word to us, and we recognize that you have designed us to deliver your word to other people, to not just receive your word, but to proclaim your word. And we want to do that, and we want to do it faithfully. We want to do it rightly, with our hearts connected, with our affections engaged, with our emotions tied to it. God, I pray that you give us tears, like Elisha, like the Apostle Paul, like the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would unblind our eyes to these infinitely great, important, glorious, wonderful things that we have seen in your word. That you would stir our hearts, stir our affections with the truth of your word. Forgive us when we're cold, indifferent, clinical professionals. Let us preach as dying men to dying men. And Father, we, we do want to see your face, not just your hand. We don't want to fall into the trap that faith healers and others fall into, thinking that our ultimate problem is our bodies and the ultimate gift is healing. Show us that our ultimate problem is our hearts. And ultimately, you have given resurrection through your son so that we could have him, know him, walk with him. That is the greatest gift. Help us to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with him, is the greatest gift you could ever give us. That it eclipses healing, that it eclipses riches, that it eclipses health, that it eclipses marriage, any relationship. Walking with Jesus is everything. Help us to live like that, walk like that by your grace. In Christ's name we pray.